I want to introduce you this morning to the little book of Second Thessalonians, but in order to do that, I want you to turn first to Psalm 73. I know that's uh, an odd procedure, but uh, I'm an odd sort of person. Psalm 73. This is, for many of you, I'm sure, a familiar psalm. The psalmist is in a world of hurt. He, uh, he looks around at the, what he describes as the prosperity of the wicked. He uh, is prejudiced against God because he can't understand why bad things keep happening to good people. And uh, conversely, good things keep happening to bad people. It doesn't make any sense to him. There seems to be no moral order in the universe. He's trying hard to do what's right, and God is not rewarding him. He begins with a statement of his, his theology. Verse 1, Surely God is good to Israel. That is, he's good to his people, to those who are pure in heart. The psalmist was one of the good guys. He was one of those who considered himself to be pure in heart in the sense that he centered on God. He worshipped God. He was a God-fearing man. But uh, his theology did not coincide with his experience. As for me, he writes, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are fat, dumb, and happy. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Pride is their necklace. They go on in their arrogance, thumbing their nose at God, and they get away with it. From their callous hearts come iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. That's uh, the same idiom that we often use. People drink it up. They hear what they have to say, and they believe them. You can make your way through life and never give God the time of day and prosper. And the psalmist says this isn't right. This is what the wicked are like. Verse 12, always carefree. They increase in wealth. And uh, so he concludes, in vain have I kept my heart pure. I got nothing out of this deal that I made with God. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. He's gone through the dark night of the soul. He doesn't understand why things aren't going better for him. He says this is a very unjust world. Things are not uh, right. But uh, then comes the moment of truth in verse 15. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed this generation of your children. Uh, this was the forgotten factor. He could not undermine the faith of the family. And so he went into the sanctuary, as he put it, till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then, he says, I understood. In other words, he looked at the word. He saw the face of God. He began to learn something that he had not known before about the way God is running the world. Now we're, pardon me, we're going to turn back to this psalm in a moment, but now I want you to go to Second Thessalonians because the problem that the people in Thessalonica were facing was, it was identically the same problem as the psalmist, one of the sons of Asaph. 
Second Thessalonians uh, follows First Thessalonians. Um, you might want to write that down. That may be the most profound thing you hear this morning. Uh, it follows First Thessalonians by just a couple of months. Uh, Paul had been in Thessalonica, had uh, preached the gospel to people that had never heard it before. They had responded. They had only been Christians a very short time, a year or so. And when Paul wrote the book of 1 Thessalonians, he praised these people to the skies. He says, your work of faith, your labor of love, your patience of hope is resounding throughout the world. Everyone has heard about it. Now, I think what happened is that some of the older, more mature Christians were saying, Paul, I think you laid it on a little heavy in 1 Thessalonians. You said too much about these people. They're not that far along. And uh, Paul wants to, uh, he wants to respond to that uh, word of criticism. There were other concerns in his mind. One, there was a bit of disorder in the church. People were not working. They were freeloading shamelessly because they expected Jesus to come back at any moment. So they were living off of the largesse of their friends and they weren't working. You know, why uh, build up all this trash that's going to burn up someday anyway? Let's just uh, sit on our, the roof of our houses and wait for the Lord to come back. And Paul has to correct that misunderstanding. Furthermore, I think some of the things that he had taught them when he was in Thessalonica and the things that he had said to them or written to them in the first letter were misunderstood. Uh, primarily his teaching about the day of the Lord. And so he needed to correct any misunderstandings that they had. It's comforting to me to know that even Paul was sometimes confusing to people. Peter says of Paul that his writings are hard to understand, and uh, they are at times. So Paul wants to correct that misunderstanding. The third thing Paul wanted to do is to address this problem of discouragement over the, over the state of things in the world. These were people that had left everything to follow Jesus, and uh, now life was becoming extremely difficult for them. And Paul wanted to uh, speak to that, that particular issue. Now let's begin reading with, uh, with verse 1. The first two verses are essentially a salutation. Uh, I'm not going to comment on this form of address because it's almost identical to the first two verses in 1 Thessalonians. The only difference is that Paul refers to God as our Father here, where he uh, refers to him as the Father in 1 Thessalonians. It's just a common uh, this is a standard form. This is the, the beginning you, of almost any letter during this period. Uh, he's, he's following standard procedure, standard literary form. Paul, Silas, Timothy, these were his friends who were associated with him in his ministry in Thessalonica and in, this, uh, in the writing of this letter. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I, when we talked about First Thessalonians, I pointed out that these people were in Thessalonica, but more importantly, they were in God. That was their protection. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other source of that kind of giving or that kind of peace. Then he launches into a word of thanksgiving from verses 3 through 10. Let's read verse 3. We ought always... To thank God for your for your brothers. I th the reason I think Paul was uh, being uh, well, somewhat criti criticized 
is because of the way he puts this statement. It's all right, he says, for us to praise you in this way. We should. It's perfectly proper. It's okay to thank God for your brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Now, here are two of Paul's triad of really important commodities in life, faith and love. They didn't have much else. As you know, they were persecuted. They had Many of them had lost their jobs, their tenured positions in the University of Thessalonica. They were being pushed around and abused. They were being opposed by their friends. They had to, it was tough. The times were hard. And uh, Paul says, uh, I understand. I know that. It's difficult. You don't have much going for you, but you have the two things that really matter. You have God and your faith in him. He's reliable. You can trust him. He can be counted on. And you have the love of the people that surround you, and you have your love for them. Those are the the qualities of life that endure. You have faith and love. Now, these people had not been Christians very long, so they had perhaps only a modicum of faith and love. They were learning. They were making mistakes. They were falling all over themselves. Sometimes they weren't loving. Sometimes they weren't trusting. They struggled in their faith because they they were new Christians. But Paul says, you're growing. You're growing. And that's what God sees. doesn't expect perfection, as I've said so many times. I'm so glad he doesn't. It's all right to make mistakes. It's all right to stumble and fall and fail. It's all right to be weak. The important thing is that we're growing. Paul uses two words, growing and increasing. The first word is descriptive of the inward process, like growth in a tree that you can't always see. And uh, the second word that he uses, increasing, has to do with the outward manifestations of that of that growth. It begins with faith. We begin to cling tighter to God and rely upon him more and believe him more. And the outward manifestation of that faith is love. We become more gentle, more tender, more caring, more thoughtful, more sensitive, you see. By love, capital L, love grows, lowercase l. So he puts the order in the the right order. It's a matter of faith, putting our roots down into God, and and love flows out of that relationship uh, to God. And as he goes on to say, he boasts about them because they are believing and loving in the face of a lot of counterindications, things that make it difficult to believe and to love. Verse 4, therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith. We could put those two words together, the endurance of your faith. You keep hanging in there. You keep hanging on to God. You keep trusting him. You keep loving the brothers and sisters despite the difficulty in doing so. It's easy to love people when it's easy to love. It's easy to believe God when it's easy to believe. It's hard to believe when it's hard to believe. It's hard to love when it's hard to love. Sociologists talk about the plausibility factor. You sit in a service like this, and uh, it's easy to believe God. My goodness, you get the warm fuzzies when you when you uh, sing these songs, and you tear up, and you you're moved uh, emotionally by the thought of trusting God and and believing Him. It all seems so wonderful, but then you get out into the world of elderly parents and drug abusing children, and and abusive husbands, and difficult spouses, and hard marriages, and difficult employers, and people are giving you flack because of your faith, and you're not moving as fast in the company as you ought to because of your 
Christian lifestyle and on and on it goes. And, and it gets to be very tough, very difficult to believe. And it's very hard to love in those, in those circumstances. And that's what they were concerned about. Is it ever going to end? Will there ever be a time when we don't have to struggle to believe? Will there ever be a time when it will be easier to love? And uh, Paul goes on to explain. Verse 5. All this is evidence. What? Well, the hard times. The difficulties. The persecutions. The struggle. The strain. The wear and the tear. The hurt. The hardness of life. All this, he says, is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. You see, what he's doing is explaining the relationship between growth in grace, growth in belief and love, and the hard times. And he, and he makes a remarkable statement. You, do you understand what he's saying? He, he's saying that the hard times are really the hand of God upon us. He doesn't send the hard times. He's not behind the principalities and powers and people that give us a hard time. But he permits the hard times to come. And in a sense, Paul says, that is the judgment of God upon our sin. Well, that's something new. That's a new way of looking at, at suffering. It's one thing to see suffering as uh, the fiery darts of the evil one and and to see the meanness in people's hearts as the motivation behind the hurts. And, and to ascribe all of our difficulty to our circumstances or to the circumstances that people contrive for us. But it's another thing to see that that's the judgment of God upon sin. You see what Paul is saying? God hates sin so much, he'll do anything he can to deal with it in his son's. There's a parallel passage I want you to look at, just so you don't think I made this up. First uh, Peter four. First Peter four twelve. Now you have to understand things were much harder when Peter wrote. He wrote many years later. Nero was on the throne by this time, and and the Christians were suffering imperial persecution. It wasn't a matter of just having your store boycotted because you were a Christian. I mean, these people were going to the arena. They were giving up their lives. They were dying for the cause of Christ. Peter, as you know himself, was martyred. He was crucified upside down. And uh, at least this is what tradition tells us. Verse 12, chapter 4, 1 Peter. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering. That is the bloody persecution that they were experiencing. As though some strange thing were happening to you. This, isn't, this shouldn't be foreign to your experience. This is not extraneous. This is not irrelevant. This is not strange. This is what you could expect. Don't, don't think it's strange that you're suffering, but rejoice that you're participating in the sufferings of Christ. He suffered. We suffer. So that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed in you, is Peter's point. Ah, that's something that Paul was talking about in in the, in the book of Second Thessalonians, it's somehow suffering produces glory. Let's go on. Verse 14. If you are insulted because of the name of, of Christ, 
you are blessed for the spirit of glory. Uh, that's the Shekinah, the cloud, you know, that uh, was suspended over the nation of Israel. The spirit of glory and of God rests on you. It's as though God's very special blessing is on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that that name. Uh, people either bore the name of Caesar, they were called Caesarianus, uh, or they bore the name of Christians. They either worshipped Caesar or you worshipped Christ in those days. And if you bore the name of Christ, then you probably went to the arena or uh, you suffered some other uh, similar fate. Things were very, very difficult. Peter says you shouldn't expect anything less than that. They killed our Lord. They, they might kill you. So he says if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Listen, verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. It is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. Oh, now that's interesting. That, that gives us an entirely new perspective on suffering. When people oppose us, that's the judgment of God upon sin. When our children oppose us, when they begin to abuse drugs, when they become alcoholics, when they become rebellious, when we have difficulty in our marriages, when the tough times come, does God send that? No, no, he does not. But he permits it. We live in a fallen world. The wheels will fall off of our programs, our best laid plans, gay after glee. The, you know, the, the, we live in a world that's falling apart at the seams. As they say, it's going to hell in a handbasket. And we're right in the middle of all of it. And yet all of this, Peter says, is guided, directed, screened through God's love, directed toward the sin in our life to rid us of the things that we're inclined to hang on to because we want to hang on to the things of this life, you see, rather than onto God himself. And so he pries our fingers loose from all of our possessions, our things that aren't going to last, our things that really don't satisfy so that that we'll learn to rely upon God alone. God hates sin so much, he'll deal with it in his sons, you see. That's what Peter is saying. And there's a psalm, Psalm 50, that says exactly the same thing. God gathers all the nations. And he says, now, I'm going to judge my people. Watch. Watch what I'm going to do. And his people go through the ringer. And the whole world observes. And, and the psalmist's point is, look what God is doing. He's hammering. He's perfecting. He's making his people into something glorious and beautiful. He's taking away the, the fear of losing. He's, he's dealing with the tendency to hold things too tightly to our own chest. And he's making us let go of what we want so we can be sweeter and wiser and more mellow and easier to get along with and more tender and more thoughtful, more loving, more believing. Say. It's time, Peter says, for judgment to begin with the household of God. Uh, there's a little poem that I have quoted before. I'd, it's a little bit sexist. You'll have to pardon this. But it applies to both men and women. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods. 
Watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands. While his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him, by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. And that's why we suffer. That's why God permits it. He could, he could deal with, our, with the hardness in our lives just like that. He could take it out. But he chooses to leave it in our life because there is a better thing on ahead. There's glory that he's producing. As Paul Puts it in another of his writings, this light momentary affliction is working for us an exceeding weight of glory. He's contrasting the lightness of our present affliction with the greater weight of glory. He's contrasting the, uh, the, the uh, uh, transient nature of our present affliction with the etern- eternality of the glory that we'll share uh, with our Lord. Now, there's another side. To the, uh, to the issue, verse 6. He is judging his church. He's dealing with sin and his sons. But God will judge those who trouble you, he says in verse 6. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. See, this is the, the other side of Jesus. This is Jesus in the temple with his eyes flashing. This is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This is Jesus turning over temples, raise, or turning over tables, raising Cain, driving people out of, the, out of the temple. This is the side of Jesus that we don't always talk about. But it is one side of Jesus. He is the judge. And uh, Paul says, one of these days, he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled. And to us as well. I, I noticed for the first time in studying this passage that that word relief is the Greek, Greek word anison, which I'm sure is the, uh, uh, the, the title of the uh, pain-relieving product came from, anison. So uh, Paul is saying, take uh, a couple of anison and wait till the Lord comes back. God is just. He will pay back trouble. See, that's retribution to those who trouble you. All in all, it is a very fair world. One of these days, God's going to come back and he's going to set things right. He's not now. He's using the fallenness of our world to, to build the qualities in our life that, uh, that we want and that he wants to make us more trusting, more loving. But one of these days, he's going to come back and he's going to deal out retribution to those who trouble you and he's going to give rest Paul says uh, to you and to us, Paul, Silas, Timothy, others, other of the uh, leaders and apostles. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven and in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at in all those who have been believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. 
In other words, one of these days, God will do what's right. Um, I, uh, some of you know Harry Wilson, just a wonderful old saint that uh, back in the 60s was actually the pastor of this church for a number of years. He laid the foundation for much of what's going on. Uh, long before most of you were part of this body, he was laboring away here. He recently discovered that he, uh, at least he was diagnosed as having cancer, and he went into the hospital, and uh, he just underwent surgery this last week, which was successful, and I believe the Lord's going to give him many additional years of, of life and ministry. But when he first went in, he really didn't think he was going to live very long. And uh, I went in to see him a couple of times. It's one of those situations from which you walk, you know, you, you walk away feeling a lot better than you did when you go in because he ministered to me. And uh, there's one phrase that he used uh, probably 25 times in the course of our conversation. He, he quoted out of the King James, David, he said, he doeth all things well. And here, you know, this, this wonderful old gentleman thought he was dying of cancer, had only a very painful future ahead of him, and he just kept saying, David, he doeth all things well. And that's our trust. That's our confidence. He's, uh, he does things well. He doesn't make any mistakes. He's ordering the universe properly. And one of these days, he's going to set everything right. He's going to come back, and Paul says, he will judge those that don't know God and who don't obey the gospel. And some of you may be thinking, uh-huh, that's just what I thought. Here are these poor, ignorant, pagan people off in uh, Africa or Australia, in the Australian outback, who never heard about God, and he's going to come back and judge them all. That's just what I thought Christians believed. But let me explain that Paul makes it very clear that everyone, everyone knows God. There are no ignorant people in the world. If you, wanna, if you want evidence for that, read through Romans 1. Paul says there is an enormous amount of revelation in nature. People can, they, first of all, there is this, uh, uh, the knowledge of God that's written on the heart, this instinctive knowledge that we all have that there is a God. And that knowledge is corroborated again and again by nature when you see what God has made. When, when Paul says people, certain people don't know God, he doesn't mean that they are ignorant. He means they have deliberately closed their mind to the knowledge of God. It always grieves me when I, uh, I always, you know, I've, I've enjoyed Marty Stauffer's uh, shows on Channel 4, uh, Wild America, and I like to watch Nature and some of those other programs. But it always grieves me because they never give God credit for anything. They never say thank you. If, if, if there's any force at all that they attribute uh, nature to, it's mother nature. It always sounds like some kind of fertility religion to me. Uh, but never God. Nobody ever stops to say thank you, God. Now, is it that they don't know God's behind? Oh, yes, they know. Oh, yes, they know. But uh, as Paul makes it clear, they have shut their minds and hearts to the knowledge of God that they have. So Paul's not talking about a problem of ignorance. He's talking about a moral problem here. The people have decided they don't want to know God. They don't want to acknowledge Him. They don't want to listen to the gospel, this good news that God loves us so much that He came to earth to die for us. They shut their hearts against all of that. And Paul says there, there are a class of people out there in the world who will suffer retribution 
when our Lord comes back and there are people who have resolutely set their heart against God. They don't want him in their life. That's the problem. And God gives them what they want. That's the most terrible fact that I can imagine. God loves us enough that he will not force truth on us. And if we do not want to know God, if we do not want to love God, if we do not want to respond to his love for us, he will let us have what we want. As C.S. Lewis puts it, we will have the terrible freedom that we have demanded. Now that should not fill us with glee. It ought to fill us with deep sorrow that there are people like that that do not want God in their lives. And when he comes back, he, in effect, he will simply say, I love you enough that I'll let you have what you want. See, that's ultimately why you know, I, I agree with Lewis that hell is ultimately a provision of God's love. That sounds strange, but it is. It's true. He just lets us have what we want. And Paul describes hell here in graphic terms. This is perhaps the best description of what hell is like. He describes it as eternal ruin, eternal exclusion or separation from the presence and the power of God. If people don't want God's presence, if they don't want his power, then God will let them have what they want. Eternal separation from God. And I can't think of anything more horrible. Because in this life, we have never experienced separation from God's presence and his power. Never. Not the staunchest and most resolute atheist has ever experienced separation from God's presence and power. He gives the whole world, you know, even if they don't acknowledge God at all, he gives the whole world love and laughter and and good families and health and these wonderful panoramas that we have here in Idaho. I just bought one of the hundred, uh, one of the centennial books on Idaho, and I was just flipping through the pages, looking at some of the places here in Idaho, and some of which I've seen, and just marveling at all of this that God has given to us here. And He gives us our minds that we can use for for good purposes and evil purposes. He even gives us the minds that we use to contrive arguments against Him. The very fact that we can think a thought comes from him. And I, we spent yesterday afternoon with our grandchildren, and, and I, you know, I thought, what a wonderful experience to just spend time with your grandchildren. You know, and then you can send them home at the end of the day. It's a, it's, a great, uh, it's a great sort of time in your life. And, uh, and, and, it, and he doesn't give that just to, just to Christians, but he gives it to non-Christians as well. You see, that's what theologians call common grace. God is present even in the life of non-believers. God grants us the, the power to enjoy life, even to, to non-believers. But one of these days, he will give them what they want. If they don't want God hanging around, then he'll let them go. He'll let them go. One of the writers of the Old Testament describes hell as a bottomless pit. And you ever have one of these dreams where you just fall and fall and fall and fall and 
Someone described it once to me as, uh, you know, it's like hanging over a precipice and God has you by the hand and you're struggling and fighting and you don't want God to hang on to you and, and He keeps telling you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I'll do anything for you. And we struggle and struggle and struggle and finally He says, all right. And we begin to fall and we fall further and further and further away. Uh, Lewis describes their state in this way. We, he says, can be left utterly and absolutely outside, repelled, exiled, estranged, finally and unspeakably ignored. Hell is eternal separation from God. Heaven is eternal fellowship with God. Paul, Jesus, all the writers describe heaven as being with the Lord. That's what makes heaven heavenly. Now, with that in mind, let's go back to the psalm that we read, Psalm 73. The psalmist entered the sanctuary of God as we have entered the sanctuary of God. We've seen the presence of God in 2 Thessalonians. And Paul said, then I understood, their, or the Asaph, one of the sons of Asaph, says, then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. They're on a slippery slope into ruin. He uses the same word ruin that Paul uses in in 2 Thessalonians. At least the Greek translations of the Old Testament use that same word. It has the idea not of annihilation, but ruin. The loss of everything that makes life meaningful. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors as a dream when one awakes. So when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. You see, they've been living in a dream world all through this world, but one of these days they'll wake up to reality. Yet, verse 23, I'm always with you. You've been holding me by my right hand. You are guiding me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And being with you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. As one old writer uh, says, the one who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. Or, put another way, if you have God only, then you have everything you need. And ultimately, everything you could ever want. See, that's what makes life uh, meaningful. It's when we finally get to that point that we realize that we have, we have a loving Heavenly Father in Heaven, and we don't need anything else. We don't even need a, an earthly father here. And, and the, the writer of, of the psalm says, And on earth I don't need another thing. I have God. And I'm satisfied with Him. Now, um, Paul ends with a prayer, and we have time only to read the prayer. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of his calling. You understand what what, what Paul is saying? He is praying that God will pour it on. You you would think he would pray for them. All right, uh, 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 let's pray that God would, uh, would bring this persecution to an end. But he doesn't do that. Paul prays that 
He will continue to judge the church so the church can become everything that God has intended it to be. Because this whole process of judgment is what is causing us to be worthy of the calling, making us more believing, more loving. And that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose, that is, every desire we have, and every act prompted by your faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul prays that every desire of our heart might be fulfilled. What is the desire of your heart, the good desire of your heart? Is it to be more patient, to be more kindly, to be more thoughtful of others? There's only one way to get there, and that's through the hard things of life, the tests, the cold shoulders that people give you, the indifference, the cuts, the hurt, the pain. Those are, those are the facts of life that, that refine us and mold us and make us into the people that, that God wants us wants us to be. I uh, Let me read something that I've been playing around with. I was looking at my grapevines this past week, and they look pretty bad. The frost got our grapes this week, sorry-looking things, all dead and dying. But then I suppose they weren't much use all along. Though green and luxuriant, they grew only a few grapes. I failed to cut them back last year. It comes to this, mere growth is never enough. Productivity is the thing, and every organism has to be cut back to be fruitful. And it isn't always the dead and ugly branches that have to go. We're glad to be rid of those. But the living and vital must be put to death that a better and more bountiful thing may grow. Productivity requires pruning, as Jesus said. The ancient vine dresser pruned his his branches so they could produce more fruit. Sometimes it seems we too have to be cut back almost to nothing, killed to the heart. It seems to me we're always being delivered up to something or other, to the cheap shots, the hurts, and the hard things that cut us to the quick. But the knife that cuts is in fact a pruning knife, putting an end to our life so that in the end we may be what we ought to be, living memorials to Jesus. The pruning knife is that rejecting gesture, that unkind or critical word, or no word at all, which is for me the most painful cut of all. It's losing out when another gets in our way or always seems to get his or her way. It's living in a fairly constant state of noise and confusion with daily pedestrian duties and no chance or choice to find a quiet place to call our own. It's waiting, hope deferred, with no promise, togetherness, companionship, liberation, no end of waiting in sight. But the pruning knife is guided by a set of good hands. The cuts only rid us of extraneous growth. The dying is necessary. Those who lose their lives reap a harvest of character and influence on others. The vine dresser knows what we can take, and he dreams of what we can be, more loving, joyful, tolerant, tranquil, tolerant, kindly, dependable, gentle, poised, stronger, and better. He has to get on with it so we can go on. And if we would grow, we must die. There's no going on without the cutting back, and so we must not shrink from the knife. 
We must trust the hands that hold the pruning knife and submit to them, looking on to the harvest. You can count on it. The fruit is always good. And what Paul says in this passage is that one of these days we're going to be glorious beings. Do you understand that? The whole world will stand in awe of what God has done in your life. You will be glorified, Paul says, as our Lord Jesus is glorified. Let me leave you with one thought. Malachi, uh, I was going to read the passage, but I'll just tell you what it says. Malachi is the last of the Old Testament prophets. He said that one of these days, uh, the messenger of the Lord is going to appear. He's talking about uh, John the Baptist, and he's going to introduce the Lord himself who will come to his temple. And that was the introduction to our Lord's coming, his, his, the incarnation. And in the gracious way, he went about manifesting the, the character of, of God. But uh, there's this other side of Jesus that Malachi talks about. It says, when he comes, he's going to refine the sons of Levi. That's us guys. We are the priests today. Not just Jewish Kohenim, Levim. Not just the priests and the Levites. Jew, Gentile, all of those that have responded to the Lordship of Christ today are are priests. And Malachi says that when Jesus comes, he will purify the sons of Levi, that's us, and he will smelt us like silver until we bear the image of God. Someone told me once that uh, silversmiths, the way silversmiths know when the process is finished, they they, uh, they, uh, smelt the silver and they strip off the, uh, they skim off the, uh, the dross off the top of the silver, and they know when the process is finished when they can see their face in the silver. When the silver mirrors their presence. And that's what God is doing for us. He's smelting, molding, making, changing to make us more and more like our Lord. That's the judgment that's taking place on his church. Paul says, I'm so thankful that God is doing that for us. Let's pray. Will you stand with me, please? We like to look at those promises in our promise box, Lord, that remind us of uh, all the good things on ahead and the things that you're going to provide for us here. And we, uh, we shy away from the thought that you've also promised suffering as part of the process to make us into what you want us to be. Help us not to waste that suffering. Rid us from bitterness and anger at you because we simply don't understand like the psalmist who described himself as as bitter like a like an animal like a beast we don't want that to be true lord we we want our hearts to be soft we we understand what you're doing that your purposes are good we're in good hands and everything that's happening to us in this life is all part of the process that you've You've promised from eternity to make us into glorious beings, awesome, godlike beings who reflect your character. We know that what will be is becoming true right now. You're at work to purify us, refine us, and make us more like our Lord. We want to cooperate with that process. Give us the grace to do so. 
As we go into this Thanksgiving period, we want to, as Paul reminded us last week, give thanks for all things because we know we're in good hands. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.